Welcome to History City, the story of the second most important place in England. Possibly. I'm Guy Morgan, and we're travelling from the end of the last Ice Age to the present day. Let's hear the spirit of York fill us in on what's happened so far. It is the 790s. Anglican Yoffawick is Christian, a centre of learning and a major focus of trade in Northumbria. But Alquin... York's famous son and leading scholar in King Charlemagne's court in Francia is appalled at the news of raiders from across the North Sea pillaging the holy island of Lindisfarne. Lo, it is nearly 350 years and we and our fathers have inhabited this most lovely land and never before has such terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race nor was it thought that such an inroad from the sea could be made. Behold the church of St Cuthbert, spattered with the blood of the priests of God, despoiled of all its ornaments, a place more venerable than all in Britain is given as a prey to pagan peoples. What security is there for the churches of Britain if St Cuthbert, with so great a throng of saints, will not defend his own? Either this is the beginning of greater grief, or the sins of those who live there have brought it upon themselves. But what led to this state of affairs? Let Alex Harvey explain. To discuss Northumbria in the 8th century, prior to the increased Danish uh, raiding activity, you've really got to compare it to Northumbria as it was in the 7th century. In the 7th century, you've got these consistent kings that reigned for quite a long period of time. Uh, Edwin, Oswald, Oswe, um, eventually through those three um, you get a state that's set up after the death of a king that outlasts them. So Northumbria is a really powerful nation in the 7th century. Towards the end of that, through the actions of King Egfrith and Aldfrith, it starts to go downhill. There's numerous reasons for that, probably too many to talk about just now, but it's the ebb and flow of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of England. Northumbria had its heyday in the 7th century, then it's time for Mercia's in the 8th. And Northumbria at this time, while it retains its importance as a place of spiritual learning and education, especially York, uh, as far as the royal and secular power goes, you've basically got loads and loads of kings that come to the throne by either killing their predecessor or being forcibly turned into monks so that they're kicked off away from any sort of royal power, and then a puppet is installed in their place. Just to name a few would be Oswulf. Murdered by his servants. Uh, Ethelwald Moll. Deposed. Alred. Deposed and exiled. Ethelred I. Like his father, deposed. Uh, that's the son of the previous Ethelwald. Then there's an Elfwald I, again. Murdered. Uh, Osred II. Deposed and exiled. Ethelred I, deposed in 779, and comes back. Osbold, exiled after a reign of 27 days. Edwulf, deposed. Elfwald, and so it goes on and on. Perhaps the names of the kings aren't so important, more the fact that it's a constant back and forth. And none of these reigns are particularly long. Oswulf, for instance, one year. Uh, his successor, Ethelwald Mole, six years. Uh, and these are being killed by fellow Northumbrians or just deposed or forced to abdicate. 
My name is Alex Harvey. I work for York Museums Trust. Recently, I've been offered a PhD to study at the University of York to go over the transition from Viking York to Anglo-Scandinavian York. How did Anglo-Saxon York move through the centuries and years of Danish incursions to the point where it becomes Coppergate? It's a confused situation and no one is really strong enough or in charge enough to deal with a bunch of heavily armed men who are coming across the North mm. Sea. And it takes a while for these heavily armed men to stop just coming on short raiding trips. What is it that makes them decide to actually come and stay? Oh, that's been a debate within Viking Age academia since time began. The various reasons why the Vikings... Uh, started and then continued and then progressed from raiding England to settling. Um, there's a myriad of push and pull factors. So the pull factors uh, will be predominantly around the growing economy of England um, that would have been steadily increasing in wealth. There are a bunch of silver coins that would have been circulating through England at this time called skiata or skiat. Uh, these were transferable currency across the entire North Sea and as England produced more and more of them and traded more and more with the Netherlands and Denmark and beyond, that generated more and more wealth. So merchants became very rich. They're trading up with Arctic pelts up in Norway. By the time of the dawn of the 8th century, this North Sea economy has generated a lot of money, and a lot of that money is going towards the churches. And, of course, churches and monastic sites, they're relatively undefended because there's a bit of an unwritten rule between at least the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that even when they go to war against one another, they usually leave the churches alone, so there's no real need to defend them. All that changes when a bunch of sort of scrappy rascals from Norway decide there's all this money on display, we really need a quick way of, of getting into this. And thus the North Sea economy attracts a lot of violent attention. And not just from... Uh, Danes and Norwegians, but also Frisians, who would of course been in the Netherlands at the time, and fellow Anglo-Saxons. Presumably they've been trading, that's how they know about all of this. Of course. Uh, there's a consistent, um, not insignificant Scandinavian presence uh, throughout England long before the Viking Age. Uh, when we talk about the great migrations that kick off the Anglo-Saxon period, all these culture groups, the Frisians, the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes... They're all travelling from more or less the same stretch facing the North Sea, uh, northwest Europe. And the Jutes, they're literally Danes. Um, so when we talk about the Vikings have, having been seen as sort of an alien threat, at least how they're depicted in pop culture, there would have been, as, as scholar Matthew Townend puts it best in his book on Viking Age Yorkshire, there would have definitely been a mutual intelligibility between the two languages of Old English and Old Norse, because these culture groups have only been separated for 200, 300 years, and like you suggested, they would have been in constant trade. So it's not quite how Alcuin puts it, where these fearsome, savage warriors turn up. People know where they're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Even in that same source, uh, Alcuin of York writing in, in the court of Charlemagne, he even attributes some of the blame of the attack for how people in northern England are dressing like the attackers. Consider carefully, brothers, and examine diligently, lest perchance this unaccustomed and unheard of evil was merited. 
consider the dress, the way of wearing the hair, the luxurious habits of the princes and people. So how would he know that if he didn't know who these attackers were? And there's an earlier attack or some sort of dispute um, before Lindisfarne in either 787 or 789 AD, I'm not sure the chroniclers can decide, that describes three ships from Hordaland in Norway that arrive on the coast of um, Dorset and commit an act of uh, war against a uh, reeve, which is a bit like a sheriff. There's some sort of debate over whether the geographical identification of these ships comes from a later edit. However, at least in the 9th century, um, Anglo-Saxon England was well aware of parts of the geography of Scandinavia and could thus identify the Norse from the Danes, even if in the chronicles they described them by similar names. So there's raiding going on. Then we get the wonderfully, fearsomely named Great Heathen Army. Yes. When did they come? So they arrive in England. They first set up a beachhead on the Isle of Thanet in 865 AD. Um, About 15 years before that, there had been a smaller Viking army on that same location. And indeed, the Isle of Thanet is likely the place where a lot of the first Anglo-Saxons came, or Angles and Saxons came to, to England. A key spot on the coast, looking in, that you can fortify. And from Thanet, the Great Heathen Army take... Kent, East Anglia, and by 867 AD, that's when they come to York, riding up and down the country on horses that they'd previously procured from another kingdom. They'd actually got the horses from a local kingdom? From East Anglia, yeah. Whether they'd bought them with wealth that they'd nicked from elsewhere or threatened with their (laughs) immense size, because this was a really impressive force compared to previous um, armies. Um, Peter Sawyer, writing in the 70s and 80s, started a few debates about the real size of the Great Heathen Army, putting it around sort of in the hundreds, actually, rather than the thousands. But uh, as more and more archaeological evidence from the army campsites comes out, uh, we've got reason to believe that it was actually massive, and not just soldiers, all of the retinues of the soldiers. So you'd have your Jarls and your kings leading the army. You'd have their loyal men. Then a lot of smaller soldier units beneath them. And then masses of merchants, farmers, traders and all of the families and kin groups of the soldiers who'd be coming along. A bit like a huge, very violent travelling circus. I'm not quite sure how entertained people were. They come to York. And York's, just at this time, there's been another one of these Game of Thrones-style fights, hasn't there? Yeah, the constant infighting in Northumbria. So what happened immediately before these guys turned up? So at this time, in in about 867 AD and a few years beforehand, you've got two rival kings in Northumbria, both asserting their ultimate claim to the the whole territory, which is north of the Humber, up to the River Tees. Um, There's Osbert, who is written about in contemporary and near-contemporary sources as being the rightful king. And then there is one Ayla, who's viewed as a tyrant. Uh, Ayla allegedly doesn't have any heritage or lineage to speak of, so he's come out of the blue, so to speak, uh, genealogically speaking, um, as a rival. Whereas Osbert was, in terms of royal speak, so to say, was meant to become king. Whether or not he was particularly successful, that's up to debate. But there's these two uh, powerhouses that are warring against one another. And our sources for 
those two characters largely come from Simeon of Durham writing in the 12th century, so a little while later. And this is where you get the characterization of, of Ayla as a tyrant. But really, we can't be so sure who was the sort of morally right king between the two. But eventually they do join forces temporarily. They put their um, animosity aside to fight the great heathen army that has at that point swept over York and allegedly conquered it by 867 AD, I believe in March. I've got the 21st of March, my intensive Wikipedia research. And what happens to them? So I mentioned Simeon of Durham. He's one of the principal sources for this time. Like I said, he's writing about 200 years after. That's, uh, if you like, the English perspective of this battle. We've also got the Ragnar Sonar's Theater, or the Tale of Ragnar's Sons, which is an Icelandic saga, and that's, if you like, the Viking perspective. And that's about 300 years. Uh, that's written after the event. Um, so what we can glean from these two sources is that Osbert and Ayla, um, after York's taken, we're not quite sure where they are during this event, they rally their armies together and attempt to drive the occupying force out of the city. Pop culture likes to depict it as they broke into York via the gates and then the Vikings did a false retreat. So the Anglo-Saxons thought that they'd taken the city and then the Vikings sprung out of the alleyways or the sewers and killed them all. Whether that actually happened, we don't know. These kind of things would be passed on in oral tradition and it'd come down to us in legend. It's also not clear if Osbert and Ayla were killed at the same time or slightly separately. Uh, those two principal sources and, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle throw um, sort of splinters of doubt at one another. Uh, it's likely that Osbert was killed first because the death of Ayla is given a lot more attention in the tale of Ragnar's sons. He's the king that is allegedly blood-eagled. Um, but that's a whole debate. Um, I think to best summarise the idea of a blood-eagle, it's not so much a gory sacrifice where people's lungs are ripped out behind their uh, shoulder blades. But the phrase uh, blood eagle probably relates to just killing um, a mass of men on a battlefield, which then attracts the eagle, which is one of the three Anglo-Saxon beasts of battle. It's a animal that you only really see after a battle because it's there pecking out the eyes of all the dead men. Yeah, it's very graphic very. and gruesome. Um, but that's what happened. Now, this is Halfdan Ragnarsson, isn't it? Yeah. Which is a name to conjure with. Now, he's got a grudge against one of these yeah, Anglo-Saxons. Yeah, this is where the Icelandic sagas come in, and, and this is what's been rooted in pop culture. If you look at the, t the TV series Vikings, this depicts this version of the event quite well. Um, you've got the great heathen army that's led by the sons of Ragnar, hence the, the name of the saga, the tale of Ragnar's sons. Um, and Ayla had allegedly previously killed Ragnar by throwing him into a snake pit, which prompts the great heathen invasion of England in the first place. It's revenge to get back at the, at the bloke who killed Ragnar. So oh. Hafdan's one of his sons. There's also Uber, Ivar the Boneless, and depending on different versions of the story there are other sons as well like Sigurd Fitzirk. I have a feeling that if you go back into my family history I'm allegedly meant to be descended from some of them but then so is everyone else in Britain as yeah. far as I can tell. My uh, grandmother has 
done a lot of work actually retracing our family tree up up her line um, and she's got it as far back to AD 700 to Jarl Haftan Whiteshanks Olafsson of Norway who's a semi-legendary person who may have existed um, but before him you can go back to AD 500 to Sigurd the Dragon Slayer and he probably didn't exist but at a certain point the history becomes slightly fairy tale which is where these common myths come through about the the great heathen army having a almost romantic movie-like element to it with a revenge story when it could just simply be an alliance a coalition of very wealthy jarls in scandinavia with a common goal of making loads of money settling land and making a, a new future it's the middle of february 2023 I'm standing in St Helens Square, just outside the famous Betty's Tea Rooms, and the place is crowded and full of people dressed as Vikings. This is Jorvik Viking Festival, and it's held every year to mark York's Viking heritage. And they're about to march all the way through to Coppergate. Why Coppergate? Well, I think we ought to go down there and ask a couple of people who know a lot more about this than me. I'm Miranda. I am the site manager of the Jorvik Viking Center, um, and I'm also one of the co-hosts of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. And I'm Lucas Norton. I am a digital engagement assistant at Jorvik Viking Center, and I'm also co-host of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. And if I remember rightly, you started off as an interpreter. Yes, I was one of the costumed Vikings at the Jorvik Viking Center. So like my, my Viking alter ego, Kiaratan. <laughs> <laughs> so you're probably pretty fluent in Old Norse, aren't you? Fluent might be a stretch, but um, I, I know a few catchphrases, I suppose, yes. <laughs> Why is the Jorvik Viking Center in Coppergate? That is a bit of a funny one, really. Um, the site where the Jorvik Viking Center and the Coppergate Shopping Center are now uh, it was an area of the city that in the 1970s was scheduled to undergo a major redevelopment and it was agreed that the York Archaeological Trust, or YAT, um, could excavate the site for six months. Now, that six months actually kind of elongated quite a bit. and They began digging in May 1976 and discovered well-preserved Viking materials, um, waterlogged, so they're basically not deteriorating almost at all from when they were put there a thousand years ago. Um, the dig area covered a thousand square meters, which extended to nine meters underground and thousands of Viking objects from, you know, some really rare materials that should have biodegraded quite quickly. Things like leather and um, wool and things like that were, were really well preserved. Uh, lots of wooden cups and things like that. Um, it's actually the wooden cups is what gave Coppergate its name, uh, Coopergata, which means Street of the Cup Makers. Um, but basically, all of these kind of objects were found there, and then uh, it had such a kind of national interest that they decided to put a museum basically in the hole that was left behind from the digs. So the fact that Jorvik is underground is because it was just built inside of, of the archaeological dig. And is that, you know, when you go down mm -hmm. to the exhibition space... Yeah. Are you actually at the Viking level? You're at Viking Street level once you get to the bottom. Yeah, bottom of those stairs. You're right at Viking Street level then. So that's how deep? Nine metres. Right. 
So there was an awful lot of digging to be done in yes. the 1970s. So it took about five years. And then after that, when they were still developing, we were under what's called a watching brief, um, which means that the archaeology is not happening anymore actively. But um, while the kind of construction work and digging in preparation for building work is happening, there's an archaeologist there monitoring things to make sure that if something else does kind of come up, that there is somebody there to, to take care of those finds. So it was five years of active digging and then a watching brief afterwards. It's not a simple thing to set up something like that no. centre. No, absolutely not. <laughs> How did people decide that they were going to create the Jorvik Centre? Because I'd say that probably was the first in Britain, wasn't it, of its sort? Yeah, absolutely. Oh. The first, we kind of call ourselves like the original Viking experience uh, <laughs> here in the UK. Prior to the Jorvik Centre, there wasn't a great deal of good information out there about the Vikings, I think. Um, they were effectively the bad guys in the story of Anglo-Saxon England. Um, but the excavation showed the, the positive impacts the Vikings had upon the developments of um, English culture, English language, and the city of York specifically as well. So using the evidence from the excavation sites, it was decided to build this museum to show people what social life was like in the period, a recreation of what this street looked like with a ride running through it. There's been three versions of the ride, if I remember. I think I've been on all of them over the years. Yeah. Now, the latest one, was, was that the one after you got hit by floods, didn't we, you? We did, but the, the ride itself was very, like the actual mechanisms for the ride was were similar before the flood, and that, that was swapped out in... 2013 something, something like right, that right yeah a bit before our time yeah, there, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was that was when it was switched to being suspended overhead so all of the mechanisms for the ride are now above and you're kind of in this almost boat-like feature you know taking you around um, a suspended version of Jorvik it's been quite an experience with all the different smells and stuff like that <laughs> yes. which, we'll, <laughs> which we'll come to what did the dig tell us about everyday life in Jorvik I mean, all sorts, really. I yeah. think you're probably best suited to, to answer that one. All sorts of aspects of their daily lives. So it revealed the remains of a street um, beneath the modern copper gate of uh, quite small, quite densely packed together houses and workshops. So in some ways, a bit like a modern street of terraced houses, I suppose, just made of materials like wattle and daub instead. A bit like studio flats in some <laughs> respects, because they're often just one room. They're very different to the stereotypical kind of Viking longhouse that you might imagine in the wild or rural Scandinavia. This is urban living, after all, living in York city centre. We've got a couple of different styles of houses because the Vikings do change throughout the period as well. The early ones are post and wattle, so woven branches of willow with, with kind of a mud and clay-like material smeared over it. In the mid-10th century, they all get replaced with much nicer, sturdy oak timber buildings as well, with big kind of spacious storage areas underneath the buildings. Um, the people who lived on the streets, they're engaged in a whole variety of different types of professions and occupations, judging by the material found in association with each household. So, for instance, we've got things like metalworking going on, both iron and non-ferrous metals to make things like tools and jewellery. Lots and lots of textile production going on. Glassworking as well, the working of bone and antler to make a variety of different types of objects. 
the manufacturing of jewellery out of amber, and lots and lots of woodworking as well, particularly cup making, which connects to the street's name there again. So we've kind of got to put the idea of a warrior and raider out of our head when we when we look at the archaeological evidence from places like Coppergate. Yeah, these are more like everyday people. Yeah. We've got very little of a military nature from that site. It's more everyday objects that people were using. We've got a great deal of dietary evidence as well. Um, we've got to remember, of course, again, being a city, they're not really producing their own food. Just like today, I don't have a cow in my garden or a, a field of wheat or anything like that. There may have been some animals in close proximity to them. We've got pets like dogs and cats would have lived with them. We think poultry may have been in the garden as a source of eggs and possibly pigs as well, because pigs will eat literally any old rubbish that you give them. Um, but for things like uh, beef and grain, fruits and vegetables, the people of Jorvik were very much dependent upon the wider Yorkshire countryside to supply them with food. So there's definitely a relationship there between the urban residents and the rural ones. And also seafood as well, it's been imported in huge quantities from the North Sea. So we've got, uh, I think, 750,000 oyster shells from the Coppergate dig. So oysters are clearly big food. Five and a half tons of animal bone as well, uh, most of which is it's cow bone. So beef is clearly the main meat they're eating, at least in this area. There are things like seeds and stones from a variety of fruits and vegetables. They're going to be locally produced ones and seasonal as well. So unlike today where all sorts of, you know, tropical fruits are available at all times of year, you're eating what the local farmers are growing just outside the city. And in terms of the living conditions, as I said earlier, they're quite kind of small cramped houses. Mm -hmm. um, generational as well. Yeah, so quite a few people living in those spaces together. So by modern standards, quite poor. We've got to be careful not to judge the people of the past by the standards of today, of <laughs> course. Uh, and no doubt in the future, they'll be criticising us for how disgusting our houses are. <laughs> um, there's not great ventilation in the early houses. They're probably quite smelly, <laughs> we think. You can't easily put windows in a wattle wall, for instance, to let fresh air in. Um, People are disposing of waste at the end of their gardens and backyards. There are cesspits out there as well. We're quite famous for our Viking poo that we have on display, <laughs> found from digs in York. Um, but also alongside what we would consider to be quite unsanitary conditions, the Vikings do seem to be quite obsessed with grooming. Their hygiene, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we found loads of different kind of things that indicate that they would have been taking really good care of themselves. We found loads of combs, so they're clearly brushing their hair, um, just in general for vanity's sake, but also to rid themselves of things like knits. Um, we found tweezers, so they're they're clearly grooming themselves as well. Um, and my favorite, the ear spoons, so cleaning out their ears and things like that as well. Um, but I mean, I think there's a there's quite a funny quote, isn't there? Yeah, there's a quote um, where an English writer is essentially kind of complaining that English women seem to prefer Viking men because they're just so well-groomed and they bathe like every week. How weird is that? Oh, these strange foreigners. That's an Anglian writer, yeah. is it? Yes, yeah. Because uh, do we use the term English at this stage or is that a kind of it's, a later name? It's a bit of a debate, to be honest. The word English does pop up um, quite early on. I, th I think uh, the writer Bede uses the term English quite early on. I think Alfred the Great's dynasty starts pushing this idea of we are the English people, the Angles and the Saxons. 
it's difficult to know whether everyday people kind of thought of themselves as English or Northumbrian or of Danish origin. There's all sorts of questions about identity and terminology for this period. And the impact of, I'll call them the Scandinavians, though, because the word Viking, as I understand it, is a job description. Yeah, it's it's a bit of another contentious one that um, it was a verb. You went Viking, you went raiding. And the people who are, you know, living at home being blacksmiths, they would not have considered themselves to be Vikings. That was, like you say, a job description. They were blacksmiths, they were were Danes or, or Norse. They wouldn't have been Vikings as such. So how did they think of themselves? Did they have an ethnic identity? That's a tricky one. Yeah, that's a tricky one. (laughs) And how did people self-identify in the period? Um, We we, we lack a lot of written evidence for the period, of course. So um, we don't really have, you know, their own words, what they thought about themselves, where they came from, who their families are. We're very much object-focused, of course, at the Jorvik Viking Centre. The documents at the time, um, I mean, the English or the Anglo-Saxons don't really refer to the Vikings as the Vikings that often. They call them the Danes, no matter where they come from, to be honest. (laughs) Norwegians and Swedes are called Danes as well. Northmen is also a term that's used as well. But the, the countries that we think of in modern Scandinavia, they've not quite yet emerged in the early Viking period. They kind of come into being toward the very end of the period. So whether somebody would think of themselves as Danish, Norwegian, Swedish, Scandinavian, it's probably very fluid and flexible, to be honest. Is there a common culture for all those people? It must vary, because I know how big it is. And I was planning a holiday to Scandinavia by train, and it's take three weeks, because it's an enormous area. So did all these people have a particular common core belief system like a quite a difficult one as well because then we're going into things like religion and stuff as well Um, and we find that the vikings really did a really good job of just fitting into whatever place they kind of went to and so they like would adopt new religions and things quite readily and they had like you know we'll probably touch on later and like they're what we consider like a pagan religion um but they adopted christianity quite readily because that's what the people around them were doing in these new countries they were visiting and there's evidence that um what's that quote about um how they found christianity blunted their swords so they adopted yes that's a quote by an arab writer yeah. yes describing the vikings he encountered yes and some convert to islam as yeah. a result yes yeah. <laughs> because um, Christianity didn't allow the bloodshed that they wanted. Um, so there are obviously things that kind of connect them all, but we're talking about a, a huge place, you know, over mm-hmm. over hundreds of years. Um, so it's, it's difficult to say that someone who was living in Jorvik in the 900s was sharing kind of much with someone who was living in, you know, northern Norway a hundred years later. It's, it's difficult, really. We have a couple of texts from Iceland, the Eddas, uh, the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda. And this is where we get the bulk of our knowledge of the Viking gods, like Thor and Loki and Odin. Those texts, they seem to reflect beliefs that predate Christianization, but they are written post-Christianization, after the end of the Viking period. And there's a question of, does this reflect what Icelandic Vikings believe? Do all Vikings believe this? We do see some evidence in artworks, for instance, on runestones that match up with stories in the Eddas. But the stories that we have, they don't really give you a sense of what day-to-day religious practice was like. We get stories that Thor's got a cool hammer 
And Loki's a bit of a trickster, isn't he? Yeah, but it doesn't say, this is how you celebrate Yule. This is the, the things you need to observe. This is the sacrifices you need to make. There's no kind of guide on how to, to follow their religion. But in those objects, I mean, there are things like little hammers, aren't yeah. there? Mm. That, that but people... even that's kind of contradictory because we, we consider, you know, Odin to be the all-father, the king Viking or king god of their religion. Um, but like you just mentioned, those hammers are everywhere. So was Thor really more important to them? You know, more people are named after Thor than were named after Odin. So are we misinterpreting, you know, who's actually in charge of all those Vikings, who they consider to be the most important? There's kind of contradictory evidence there straight away. We're missing like a Viking Bible or something <laughs> like that. That'd be really helpful if they wrote one of those down. Well, probably they spoke one, then you had to learn yeah. the top one. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's, a, it's an oral culture, the early Vikings. What do they do with York? So this is where the historical record and archaeological record become a bit murky. Um, the Anglo-Saxon record for York, at least archaeologically speaking, basically ends at 867. That's where the excavations that revealed parts of the Anglo-Saxon trading port at Fishergate, uh, the layers seem to stop around there. And in the 70s and 80s, of course, they discovered Coppergate, which is the site of a really sort of proto-urbanised Viking Age trading centre. But the lowest layer of that is 930 AD. So there's an almost 60, 70 year gap there between what you'd call Anglo-Saxon York and Viking Age York, or Eofawik versus Jorvik. The historical record uh, tells us a bunch of puppet kings that are installed um, at numerous intervals by the great heathen army, the first of whom is Egbert. And the thing about these puppet kings is, in our principal source for the time period, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, uh, what you've got to remember is that that's being written by Alfred the Great and people in Wessex. And they have very strong biases. They want to talk about the supremacy of Wessex and the rightful conquest of Viking territories from Alfred. So they they slander every other ruler that's allegedly installed by the great heathen army. Ecbert may well have inherited Northumbria or parts of Northumbria through being installed, but whether or not he was some sort of meek worm that had no opinions of his own, we'll never know. It's probable that he was actually not too bad because he's soon expelled by the army himself and replaced by someone called uh, Riesig, that's a slightly more Scandinavian-sounding name. So it's possible that this Ekbert had created a, a, a lot of political turmoil or perhaps a rebellion for the great heathen army who were occupying Northumbria at the time. And what happened to Halfdan Ragnarsson? So he comes in not perhaps as king but some sort of ruler of Northumbria by 876 AD. This is the same year that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states that the winter contingent of the Great Heathen Army, so it splits in two at some point, the northern half, the winter army, they settle their land, and their land being Northumbria in this case. So this is where a lot of the place names of the north of England, aka Haxby, for instance, will come from, the BY indicating Old Norse residents. So they break apart the pre-established Anglo-Saxon multi-villa estates and turn them into what you'd call a polyfocal farm. Local farms with small trade links to one another. But these aren't Anglo-Saxon villages. These have been replaced by Norse farms in most cases. And this is what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle describes in that instance. We're not seeing 
um, mass displacement though of the ordinary people. There's nothing like an ethnic cleansing going on or anything like that. We can imagine that the ruling classes probably dying in battles because they're war leaders, of course, the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy. They're probably losing battles, being displaced by the Viking rulers. But the ordinary people, the tenant farmers, the craftspeople, they're just paying their taxes to a new guy, most likely. <laughs> and from the sound of it, because they're so well-groomed, these Scandinavians, they're quite popular with the English ladies. Yeah. Yeah. So you're already getting intermingling, let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, they, they're brought into the fold quite quickly, so we kind of adopt this Anglo-Scandinavian culture, really. That's kind of what is mainly being represented at the Orwick Viking Centre, was kind of a, a mixture, a melting pot of, of all of these different cultures and influences. And presumably not solely Scandinavian and Anglo-Saxon, because it must have been quite a cosmopolitan place from the sound of it. Relatively, yeah. Um, Jorvik was a bit of a trading hub as well, so we've got evidence of things coming from the Red Sea and, and all over the Middle East and things like that as well. So you're you're talking about people from all over the world. We've um, we've got evidence for a vast trade network, and, and those objects were probably being brought over from people from those regions. Um, so it wouldn't have just been the, the English or the, the Anglians and, and the Scandinavian. There were, would have been other presence there as well. You say it's a trading hub. How important is Jorvik in the Scandinavian world? Well, again, it's a bit difficult without the written evidence, but it's very noteworthy that whenever Viking rulers try to invade England, they head straight for Jorvik. That's the kind of the jewel in the crown, it seems. Um, so, for example, when Harold Hadrada invades at the end of the period, he doesn't go for London. He arrives in the north of England and comes straight for this city. And Jorvik, it must be very prestigious, I think, as a place to govern and settle. It's a very old city, of course, by this point. Uh, Scandinavia itself has no tradition of urban life, really, by this point. The earliest trading towns are only just emerging during the Viking Age. But York, of course, dates all the way back to the Roman period, so it's got that kind of prestige attached to it. And also it's the seat of Northern Christianity as well. Throughout this whole period, there's a minster here, the archbishop is here. Occasionally the archbishop is of Danish origin as well. We have Vi Viking <laughs> clergy here. So York, I think the Vikings prized it greatly for its wealth and its prestige and the, the honor of having it. So they arrived in what year in York? Um, it's the 860s we're looking at. Uh, 866 is the year we traditionally say for the arrival of the Vikings. And it was Jofferwick? Yes. I know there are various pronunciations. <laughs> yes. I'm doing my best. But what kind of city did they find then and what did they turn it into? So the Anglian city of uh, Jofferwick, it's probably relatively small in size. I think some experts have estimated a couple of thousand people probably live here. So you've got um, the Minster, of course, and the kind of ecclesiastical court around that. It's the capital of Northumbria. So there would have been a local aristocracy along with the king of Northumbria probably residing in the area. And then there'd be a court surrounding those people to service them. It's not a major metropolis, really, by any means, particularly if you compared it to the cities of southern Europe at this point. Um, probably you could imagine from Roman ruins dotted about the place as well. Urban life effectively collapsed in Britain after the Romans withdrew in the 5th century. 
When the Scandinavians arrive, though, they populate the city in enormous numbers. We're also quite likely seeing people from the countryside in Yorkshire moving to the city in search of new opportunities. We're effectively seeing a kind of industrial revolution going on as well. People are starting new trades in various industries and crafts, like I listed earlier. Uh, urban life is renewed under the Vikings, so the city then explodes in size. We estimate by the end of the period, by the mid-11th century, we're looking at maybe 15,000 people living here. Uh, much of the modern street plan of York actually dates back to the Viking Age. It's why our streets are so twisty and windy and not in a grid pattern like a Roman city would be. Lots of the street names, of course, come from the Viking language as well. Uh, Micklegates is the Great Street, for instance. Um, the urban defences are rebuilt under the Vikings as well to stop the other Viking kings from taking it, presumably. <laughs> so York just booms in size, booms in trade. It becomes like you know the second city in England, really. That huge urban explosion that you were talking about, I mean, how swift was that when Jofferwick sort of turned into this Anglo-Scandinavian city in, what is it, about a generation, possibly? I'm not sure if there's been specific studies on kind of the rate of growth, to be honest. We'd need to basically dig up a lot more of the city <laughs> in order to get a clear idea of that. We brag a lot about Coppergate mm -hmm. and all we've learned from it, but really it's about 1% of the city. Um, so I think we need a larger sample, to be honest, to get a clear <laughs> sense of the rate of growth. Um, we just we mainly quote the beginning and the end points to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and you talked earlier about things being wattle and daub and then turning into more substantial buildings mm -hmm. with oak timbers and cellars and, and stuff like that. Yes, in terms of the footprint of the city and the nature of the buildings, did they take over part of Yofferwick or did they kind of add bits on to the edge of stuff because Jofferwick was already added onto the old Roman bit and you just get these kind of fairy rings that go out. Mm. So was the Scandinavian part new territory or had people been living on it and working on it before? So I mean based on sites like Coppergate when we kind of dig below the Viking levels there's not a lot going on <laughs> down there it kind of seems to be wasteland in the Anglian period and then much deeper below that on Coppergate, we have evidence of Roman cemeteries. And the Romans always bury their dead far outside of the cities they live in. They don't like mix in the living and the dead together. So particularly in that kind of area of the city, the Vikings are making it wider. They're stretching it further down the river. And we actually think we see in the Viking period kind of a shift in where the kind of the centre of activity is in York. If you go back to the Roman period, you could walk in a straight line from York Minster down Stonegate, straight through St. Helens Square and the Mansion House to a big bridge. And that bridge was probably the only way to cross the river at that point. That's the middle of the city. By the Viking period, that bridge, it's either been pulled down or collapsed from wear and tear. And the Vikings build their bridge where the modern Ouse Bridge now stands at the end of Micklegate. So they completely shift the centre of activity kind of eastwards down the river towards Oosgate and Coppergate, where these new streets seem to be popping up. So, yeah, there's a lot of expansion of the city in size under, under the Viking period, physically as well as in population size. And those relics are still around? 
you talk about the street names, you talk mm. about the street pattern. Mm. But isn't it also the case that actually if you look at some buildings, say um, Warmgate, for example, mm-hmm. and you look at the front of the buildings, mm-hmm. they're quite narrow, but they're quite deep. Mm. Is that a Viking thing? It might well be, yes. So Coppergate, again, is a great example of this, how we see its effects of your wasteland in the Anglian period, the Vikings turn up and they set up a set of about four or five property boundaries. And those exact same property boundaries continue through the Viking Age, with new buildings replacing old ones, of course. Then into the medieval period, the same property boundaries are still there. And it goes on and on and on until in the modern period, we, we've kind of messed things up a little bit, to be honest, in some areas, building gigantic shopping centres and things like that. But if you go further down Coppergate, you'll see a lot of very narrow buildings uh, which probably lie on the exact same property boundaries set out by the Vikings, as if a title deeds passed down for a thousand years. <laughs> so, the dead hand of history is still very much alive in York. And there's much more to the story, as Jorvik develops its own Anglo-Scandinavian culture. And because of that cosmopolitan fusion, Yorkshire, as anyone who lives here will tell you, has its own very distinct identity. And we'll be exploring how that sense of difference survived, even when Yorkshire was absorbed into the rest of England. My thanks to our guests, Alex Harvey from the Yorkshire Museum, and to Miranda Schmiederer and Lucas Norton, hosts of that Jorvik Viking Thing podcast. They'll be back next time with more Norse morsels, when we get up close and very personal with a resident of Anglo-Scandinavian York. There are links to Lucas and Miranda's show, plus Jorvik Viking Centre and Jorvik Viking Festival in our programme notes, plus other internet rabbit holes to chase down. In this podcast, Alcuin of York's diatribes were voiced by David Newell, and the spirit of York is Alison Willis. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Guy Morgan of Soundstage North, and if you enjoyed the programme, why not write a review on your podcast provider's site? It helps spread the word. Thanks for listening to History City, and we hope you can join us next time.